that was the that was the most unenthusiastic response. I think I'm just going to go home. Uh, yeah, we're all excited. No, okay, you all okay? Just 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 prod the person next to you. Make sure they're still alive. Don't prod them too hard. Right. Um, Last week, uh, Henry spoke about what a good city looks like and how we, how we as God's people uh, not only are uh, called to be a part of that, but how there are things which um, prevent that, things which can get in the way of us doing an effective job with that. Um, during the the week of prayer that we had at the beginning of the, the year, I felt God start to speak to me about Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, just in case you weren't sure, is a book in the Old Testament. And uh, I had read it before, uh, but it was a long time since I'd read it. So I spent my week going through this book and, and seeing the way that it was very, very significant in the whole picture of our city, of we as part of God's church having an impact in our city. So we are over the next few weeks going to spend a little time looking at this, not simply so that we can understand what happened then, but so that we can see how it applies to us now. There are significant principles and things that God wants us to understand through uh, what we, we read there. So we're starting off with the book of Ezra. Is it up there? Brilliant. Thanks, Noah. Good job. Um, there are, uh, if, if you know the, the Old Testament a, a bit, you'll know that there's a, there's a, a block of books after all the sort of histories, uh, which go Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And they are to do with the time when God's people were booted out of their country, basically. And it's, there was a period when they were booted out. There were all sorts of things that went on. And they eventually, they got back in. Ezra is part of the story of them getting back into the country. I want to try to give you a very brief overview of the whole story so that we're all kind of at the same place and understand why we have a book of Ezra and, and really what it's about. And then I want to pick out a couple of things that I think are important. Okay. Next one. I don't know how closely you've uh, worked your way through the, the Old Testament over the years. Some of you will have done, some of you, uh, you won't have, have done that yet. It's a big book, and it can be confusing. So I'm going to, to try to, to give you one of the threads that's in the book that will help you to grasp the whole thing. God was promising his people an inheritance. It started with one man. Before there even was a people, there was one man. His name was Abraham. And God promised him that he and his descendants, and that there would be a lot of descendants, they would inherit the wonderful promises of God. That promise was repeated, not just to him, but to others, to his, uh, to his son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob. Jacob had a real encounter with God in a dream, and God reiterated the promise to him and said, even though he was just one guy at the time, it's just like God, and he starts making promises about a whole nation to one person. So if God's ever spoken anything really extraordinary and just seemingly overwhelmingly daft to you, um, 
that's a really good indication that it's God. Do you know that? Because God doesn't just ask us to do things that we can do. He asks us to do the impossible and to simply partner with him in things that he's doing. And that's what he was doing all through the Old Testament with, uh, with Moses as well. Spoke to him through a burning bush. Uh, anybody had that experience yet? No? Okay. Um, just say, Lord, I, I, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a burning uh, bush speak to you. Might take you by surprise a little bit. But, uh, um, and then Joshua and then a whole load of others. God continued to reiterate this promise. One of the reasons he had to keep making the invitation to enter into this was that his people didn't believe him. They just didn't accept that God was that good. They kept expecting there to be um, some other route that they could, could go. And the story of the Old Testament is really the story of God's people missing the mark a lot. Um, every now and then, they, they kind of got themselves lined up fairly well. But most of the time, they missed it. Sometimes they missed it by that much. Sometimes they missed it by that much. But sometimes, even more than that. They, they were so far away from where God longed for them to be and where he had invited them to be. Eventually, it got to the point where they simply weren't listening at all and God had sent prophets and all kinds of people and said, hey, listen up, guys. I'm a good God and I'm promising you all this. Just let's cooperate. Let's partner together. Let's do this this way because this is the only way it's going to work. Trust me, I'm God. And they all thought, no, we know a better way. We'll go off and we'll worship these other idols and we'll do all these things that, that go against the, the way you've asked us to live. And, and God got to the point where he said, okay, that's it, guys. You, I've really, really tried to get through. But the only way I'm going to get through to you is to remove you from the place that I gave you. So the promise I gave you to inherit this land hundreds of years before, I'm not taking that promise away. I'm just showing you what it's like when you don't have my help to stay there. So about 600 years before Jesus arrived, um, two other groups of people arrived and at different times, a few years apart, carted off God's people to another part of the, the Middle East. And this is the way they used to operate in those days when a, a foreign power invaded. They, they used to take... Um, Lots and lots of the, the citizens off, and they would just plonk them in another culture, in another city, in another region, where uh, they wouldn't have the same kind of power base and security and so on. Uh, and that's why they were physically taken from where they were and uh, literally marched across the desert to... Uh, first, the first group went to Assyria, second group went to Babylon, and... And they had to settle there. Meanwhile, some other people were brought in and they were stuck in Jerusalem. So there was a whole kind of mishmash of people going on. Despite this, God had warned the people this was going to happen. And he'd also sent a guy called Jeremiah to say, it's going to happen, but it's only going to happen for 70 years. And after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. Now, you'd think that people would say, oh, that would be so good, wouldn't you? Yeah, we would. Okay, I'm just checking that you're listening. 
But of course they forgot. Um, And it ended up with a guy called Daniel reading Jeremiah's prophecy that he'd written down and looking at the dates and working it out and going, oh my goodness, we're supposed to be going back. So Daniel set himself to pray. And as he prayed, um, there was a lot of kind of uh, shifting that went on in the heavenly realm. And it released some things. So what we get by the time we get to Ezra is the result of prophecy that you've read or that you might read in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and in other books in the Old Testament and historic things that happen in Kings and Chronicles and prophetic things that happen in Daniel and they all converge into the physical action of God's people starting to move back to Jerusalem. Okay, that's the synopsis. Next one, please. They've got a task to do. God's people were defined by the fact that they worshipped God, they lived in the land that God had given them, um, and they were uh, those who followed God in... They, they had the, the laws and, and so on that they followed. All that had been taking, taken away from them. So they had three tasks in this order. They wanted to go in and rebuild the temple, because that was the centre of worship. They wanted to therefore restore worship, and they wanted to reclaim their inheritance. And the thing that I want us to get hold of here is that this story is about reclaiming inheritance. And our story is about claiming an inheritance. That's why this is significant to us. It's not just the history of how we got here. It's the history of the process that God is taking us through. Okay, uh, I'm going to um, whip through this really quickly. Uh, Let's go on. So the book is called Ezra, and it's really written in two sections. Ezra himself doesn't appear in the first section. It happens about 60 years before the second section in which Ezra does appear. How did Ezra know about that? I don't know. Somebody told him it was a story that was told over and over and over. It may even have been written down somewhere by some, some scribe. Uh, the key guy in the first part is a guy called Zerubbabel. I love this name. Can't you just say it with me? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. I don't know. Tom and Bex, you know, next, next baby, a son, maybe. Zerubbabel Cox. Maybe. Maybe, maybe Lizzie should be grateful that she's a girl. I, I don't know. But um, the most amazing thing here is that the king of uh, Babylon at the time, by this time, uh, during Daniel's reign, Daniel, rei- uh, Daniel served a long time. He didn't reign. He served a long time, about 80 years. He was, about, um, he was a teenager when he got carted off, and he was certainly well into his 80s when he was sitting in a den full of lions. That's why they didn't eat him, because there was just no meat left. Um, and uh, that's not true by the way just don't, don't quote me on that I think it was something to do with God uh, lost my train of thought where was I going oh yeah so the guy in charge at this point was a guy called Cyrus and um, Cyrus was 
I, I tried to do a bit of research on him to see what he was like. And basically, he, he seems to have been a good guy. I mean, you didn't rule over an empire like that at that time and, and be a really kind of reasonable and nice character because you had to be pretty tough and you know, had to kill a few people and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he seemed to have been a good ruler because he brought peace into a lot of areas. And one of the things he did was he said to all these, these people... The God of Jerusalem, because gods were regional at that time as far as they were concerned. So the God of Jerusalem, he, he did his stuff in Jerusalem. He didn't go to Babylon. So he, if the, uh, the Israelites really wanted to worship him as far as they were concerned, they had to go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus said, the God of Jerusalem has spoken to me and told me to send you all back so that you can rebuild the temple and worship this God. What's more, it was prophesied... Uh, I think, Jeremiah, somebody tell me if I'm right, certainly it was prophesied by somebody, that it would be Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Extraordinary. So Cyrus not only releases all the captives to go, almost 70 years after they've been uh, taken as captives, but he, he says, uh, and you, sh- you should give all these people money. You should give them gold and silver and, and so on so that they can go back and rebuild this temple and make it fantastic. Um, just like when the Israelites left Egypt and they uh, got sent out, slightly different circumstances, but they got sent out and, um, and they asked all their neighbors for gold and silver and jewels and everything and I think that was where a lot of the, um, the wealth to, to build their own worship um, facility came from. So this guy, Zerubbabel, left with about 50,000 people. Um, the, the book of Ezra, in the early parts, very, very detailed. And it has lists of all the families and how many people and so on. So I've got no basis for arguing with it. So it seems to me that it's probably accurate. Um, and with about 15 million pounds in treasure. Um, if you kind of go through it and work it out and how much it weighed and, and current market values and so on. Uh, most of it gold. And uh, it's just the logistical business of carrying that gold and silver to uh, across the, the desert safely so that they didn't get attacked by bandits and so on. All right, there were 50,000 of them, so it's a fairly formidable group. But um, just... It's a bit mind-blowing, really. But nonetheless, they did it. Excuse me. Next one, please. They get to Jerusalem, and they set about rebuilding the altar straight away. Now, you have to understand that Jerusalem has just been flattened uh, 70 years ago. It was flattened. Everything was pulled down. The temple was destroyed. Ezekiel even had a picture of God's spirit, uh, a vision of God's spirit leaving the temple. So the Jews were devastated. They had nothing. And all they went back to really was a blackened circle of burned rocks and earth. It really was a scorched earth policy that was carried out by the Babylonians when they pulled the, the Jews out. And the first thing that they did when they went back is they started to rebuild the altar not the, the temple, not the Holy of Holies, the altar, because the altar was the place of, excuse me, the place of sacrifice. It was the place of uh, how they understood worship and of giving 
to God. It was the first thing that they did. And the altar didn't take a lot of rebuilding. Just get some stones, put them back together, put a slab of stone on the top or something, and begin to sacrifice again and to say, we are here. God, we are back. Now, I know God never left them. But as far as they were concerned, returning was highly, highly significant. They were reclaiming their inheritance. They were reclaiming their identity. For 70 years, they'd been exiles without an identity. One of the the big issues for us, you see, because we're exiles. We're exiles from the the, the kingdom of heaven. Peter talks about us being strangers. Live in the land as strangers, he said in one of his letters. And, and we all know that we have a kind of a disconnect with society, a disconnect with, with the values of society because we're, we're a people are learning to value God and to, to put him as first place in our lives. And so we're on a journey of discovering our identity. They too were on the same journey, only they felt and at that time it was appropriate for them to go back to Jerusalem to do that they rebuilt the altar they re-established worship nobody had been able to go to church for 70 years that's effectively what it was because church for them meant temple temple meant sacrifice Sacrifice meant the forgiveness of sins. Their sin had led them to the point where they had been exiled from their own land. Just like the, the story in Genesis with Adam and Eve being exiled from the land that God had prepared for them. Not only had they been exiled, they hadn't been able to put it right. Because they hadn't been able to sacrifice So it was unresolved. It was an unresolved issue in a whole people. And it was only through the... I mean, God working through Cyrus, you cannot underestimate that. We we look at world leaders around the, uh, the globe and we just say, oh, God couldn't use that person. That's not true. That's not true at all. No matter who they are or what they're like, God can use them. Because God used a guy like Cyrus. God used all sorts of other people. People that didn't know him and that probably died not knowing him. And yet God can still use them. So they re-established sacrifice and worship for themselves. And then they began to relay foundations. Um, Anybody uh, ever kind of built an extension or a house or anything like that? You will know the importance of laying good foundations. So what they had to do was relay foundations. Now remember, all the temple had been torn down and um, there were stones everywhere and it had been all the the sort of um, flammable material had been burnt and everything. So it was a bit of a mess. So they had to clear it all and then they had to mark it out. Then they had to kind of dig the trench and... To lay all the foundations wasn't concrete, obviously, just in case that's what you're thinking, because the concrete uh, cement mixer hadn't been invented at that point. And that was supposed to be funny. Okay, suit yourselves. Um, and 
Piers is the back going, yeah, Graham, yeah, okay. Um, the importance of, of doing this was, was significant. They couldn't build their lives again until they had put in the foundations. And it was at this point that the other people who lived there in Jerusalem, so remember 70 years ago, they'd all been taken off, other people had been brought in. So these other people have been living in and around Jerusalem, in and around the ruins and the city and so on, for about 70 years. To them, it's home. And uh, this foreign bunch, as far as they're concerned, they come back and say, oh no, we used to live here, we're going to, to reclaim this. And uh, they start building and they're putting out the foundations and everything. And all the, the, the locals who live there, they're suddenly scratching their heads going, whoa, this is dangerous. These people are coming in to take over. Um, so they do what most people would do in such a situation. Uh, they form a committee and they start appealing to the bureaucracy. And what they do is they write a letter um, back to the king who sent them by this time, it's a different king. Kings used to change quite quickly in those days. And um, if you, I tried to work it out who was king when. It's very, very confusing because firstly, it's a long time ago. And, and secondly, um, uh, one person seemed to have several names. So you could be reading about some guy here and then you read about some other guy and you think, is this someone different? And then you realize it's the same guy. And then it says, oh, his son. And actually, it wasn't his son. It was his grandson or something like that. So... If you want me to be exact, I'm not going to be. But just, just bear in mind, this is somebody else. Okay? And he goes into a, a, an area of their kind of record keeping. Or he sends somebody else to, to go and look because they, they were a kingdom who were very good at keeping records. And they find a record that says why Jerusalem was emptied and the Jews exiled in the first place because they were troublemakers. And so the king says, okay, these are troublemakers. I don't know what they're doing back there, but we don't want them rebuilding their temple. So stop. So there is opposition They're trying to re-establish something and there is opposition. Anytime God speaks to us, he's trying to establish something. He's trying to establish something in your life individually or in our lives collectively or in your family's life. And every time he speaks something, it will be opposed. Why is it opposed? Because the enemy doesn't want it to happen. Because he knows God's spoken it. And he's, he's sort of sitting back here going, whoa, God's speaking again. And he's speaking to that guy there and that girl there. And if they actually do what God says, I'm really in trouble. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to oppose them. So just say the, the thing is in a, God speaks to you about a particular set of circumstances in your workplace that you're praying about and God wants to bring order into, wants to bring his kingdom into. And you're praying about them and you feel God speak and you're so encouraged and you go in on Monday morning and the whole thing's much, much worse. And what do we immediately say to ourselves? Oh, I must have got it wrong. Hello? You didn't get it wrong. You heard right. It's being opposed. So take God's word that you heard And push through it. Take God's word and just say, no, I'm not having this situation because God's spoken something different. So I'm going to act in accordance with God's word, not in accordance with the opposition. I'm going to see the opposition pushed away. I'm going to see God's word established. That's right. We do that all the time, don't we? Yes, we do, Graham. Good. 
So that's exactly what was happening here, only it was happening on a big scale. It was happening on a kind of mega history scale. The opposition came along, they started jumping up and down and shouting and waving bits of paper at them and, uh, and saying, oh, you know, we'll, we'll get your knuckles wrapped by the, uh, the authorities. And so what did God's people do? They say, oh, all right. And they just stop. They down tools. They give up and they disappear off to build their own houses and to do their own thing. And just to, to comfort themselves and say, oh, well, we can't reestablish worship, but at least I can have a nice house. At least I can have a, a, a nice bed to sleep on and a, and a, uh, it wouldn't be a flat screen TV. What would it be? Um, flat screen fire or, or something to look at. I don't know. Thank you, Paul. So, I'm really trying here, Paul. I don't know what's up with the rest of them. Um, so God looks at me and goes, oh my goodness, going to have to give him some help. So he sends a couple of prophetic voices. Sends a guy called uh, Habakkuk um, and he sends a guy called Zechariah. I'm not going to say anything about them because we've got some people looking at them later on and I don't want to take away from what they're going to say. But basically, these guys come out and they just say, whoa, people, get a grip. Get back on with the job. Don't wait for the situation to be resolved. Just get on following the word of God, which is what they try to do. So they get on and they follow the word of God. And then guess what? The opposition gets resolved. You can read the book for yourselves if you want to find out how. And eventually they build the temple. A couple of things happen in the building of the temple. One, most people are very, very excited about it. That's what they've come back for. That's what they've waited 70 years for. Except a group of older people who look at the temple and just... or look at, They looked at the foundations, actually, and they just wept. Because they were trapped in what was. They were stuck in what was, and they couldn't enter into what was now and what was happening in front of them. Does that ever happen to us? We're stuck in what was. We're stuck in the way things used to be. We're stuck in the kind of golden era of something. Maybe even of our lives. You know, stuff happens in life. Uh, Fifteen years ago today, I was running the London Marathon. I know. See, that, that was funny. I was. I was running the London Marathon. And it was hotter than it is... Uh, well, it was certainly hotter in London. It was a really... Really hot day. Actually, I was invited to, to run this time, but I said, no, I, I can't. I'm sorry, I've got to speak that Sunday morning, you know. <laughs> but, um, that, that was Becky reminding me, it was 15 years ago. I, I mean, every time the, the marathon's on, I just like to, to watch the start because uh, it's such a, a great thing. But I can't live in 15 years ago. You know, at the moment, you know, just getting from here to the coffee station is, has its challenges. But that's not, I'm not going to live in the golden era of the past and I'm not going to live in my circumstances now. I'm living in the promise of God. That's what these people needed to learn. That's what we need to learn. Eventually, they completed the temple. That gets us halfway through Ezra. The rest of, then Ezra turns up in his own book, which is really nice of him, isn't it? I mean, he, he actually arrives. There's four chapters left. And the the chapter 7 starts with, and then a guy called Ezra comes along. 
And actually, when you start to kind of dig into it, you realize that it's about 50 years later. So the temp, the, yeah, that's lovely. Thank you, Megan. Good digging in. Well done. Um, the temple's up, but nothing else has happened. And then we, we get on to Nehemiah, and he starts to come and sort the walls out. That'll be next week. What happens with, with Ezra is then he goes back, and he is somebody who has read God's book. Most of these people hadn't read God's book. Ezra had. He'd read the, the scrolls. He knew what was going on. And he came back, and he found out something that uh, really, really upset him. The very things that Israel had done that got them kicked out in the first place, they had started to do again. Just a couple of generations on, they'd started to neglect God. They'd started to neglect building a sense of community. They had been attracted by other things. Uh, Can you go on the next one, Noah? Um, yeah, next one. Sorry. Uh, next one. So they hadn't. So th- this section is about them not reclaiming their inheritance. So they rebuilt the temple. I mean, the temple was just an incredible thing. They poured all their, their money into it. And they were probably, listen, they were probably going along and doing all the sacrificial stuff. They were probably in the form of their old religion. But Ezra came along, next slide please, and found that they had divided hearts. The men were were marrying local women. The women were marrying local men. This is the problem. Now, I'm actually going to read something out of the Bible for you. um, Because as you can tell, I'm trying to go fairly quickly through this. So, uh, If you want to understand the book of Ezra, I think this is a key verse. This is a kind of pivotal verse for me it's in Ezra uh, it's in chapter 9 and it's in the middle of Ezra's prayer where he is weeping and broken before God because Ezra has got the big picture Ezra sees what's going on and he he's praying through this and he's He's saying, God, will you forgive us because we have simply walked the same path again? Because, uh, let's... Let's pick it up at verse 10. Um, And now, oh our God, what can we say after all of this? For once again, we've abandoned your commands. The Old Testament talks a lot about commands, and, and they are commands. But remember that the heart of God is always the same. God has always invited his people into a relationship. The commands are the things that help keep us on the road, that help keep us focused in on the Lord. They're not suggestions. It's not the ten suggestions. And yes, in the, under the, the old covenant, breaking the commandments was, was a pretty serious thing. But now... Because of the grace of God, shed abroad, let uh, let loose, released into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God invites us 
into a relationship in just the same way that he did then. Very few people in the Old Testament really managed to enter into it. But uh, verse 11, your servants, the prophets, warned us when they said, the land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. So this is going back to Joshua. This is going back a couple of, uh, almost over a thousand years probably. Um, Don't... Don't let your daughters marry... Uh, sorry, let me start again. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't let their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosper, prosperity of those nations. The other nations simply did not want anything to do with God. That's it, basically. The other nations didn't want anything to do with God. And what God was saying was, if you send your children out into that kingdom, into that regime, you will dilute and lose the intimacy that I promise you. Um, The next bit is key. If you, this is God's people, if you follow these instructions, you will be strong and will enjoy the good things the land produces. This is talking about economic prosperity. This is talking about health. This is talking about good nutrition. It's talking about really, really practical things that we care about for our bodies and for our families and our communities. And God is saying, basically, it's all to do with having a focus on me. We're not losing focus. That's why they went back to re-establish worship. Because whatever they wanted to achieve in the city and in the land had to flow out of worship. Whatever injustice they were against had to be, uh, the fight for that had to be born out of their inheritance. That's good, I'm going to say that again. Whatever injustice they were opposing, it had to come out of their inheritance. They had to understand their inheritance. You will enjoy the good things the land produces and you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. What is God saying? God is saying, if you put me first, if you have no distractions, if your hearts are focused singly, if there is nothing to lead you in another direction, you can be guaranteed these promises for your children, these promises for your grandchildren, these promises for your great-grandchildren. There will be peace. There will be prosperity. Your whole region will benefit from it. If God's people in Worcester are focused upon him and him alone, this whole city will be blessed. That's not my rhetoric. That's simply the promise of God. The fact is, we know we're not. The fact is, we know we're not. We get distractions. There are things that distract us. Things that take our attention. Things that we worry about. See, worry is just your imagination used the wrong way. God didn't give you an imagination for you to use it worrying. 
He gave you an imagination for you to use it dreaming. Dreaming of all the things that God wanted to do. And what do we do with it? We worry. We worry about what's going to happen. We worry about this, that, and the other. There was one, uh, one occasion when I, I know I was worrying about something and I, I felt God say to me, why are you speculating about things you've got no control over? And I thought, I don't know. So I stopped. I just, I just stopped. Now it's not always that easy. I understand that. Um, you know, there, are, there are big worries and there are little worries, but they're all the same. And if our minds and our hearts are filled with God, there's no room for worry. If our minds and our hearts are filled with God, there's no room for distractions about other things. And we get distracted by a whole load of different things. We get distracted by different relationships. We get distracted by where we, uh, how we use our time. We get distracted by different things to amuse us. You know, maybe gambling, maybe the the stuff that we're we're reading or watching on TV or even uh, what we listen to. Uh, we get distracted by all kinds of things. We're looking. We're looking in all kinds of directions for the security that God has as part of our inheritance. We're trying to claim our inheritance, but we're trying to claim it from the wrong things. Am I making myself clear? Now, I'm not saying this because I've got it all together. I know I haven't. I just know it's true for me. If it's true for me, it's probably true for you as well. See, if, if, when, when we are a community totally focused on the Lord worship times like we have this morning would be so incredibly full of heavenly encounters they will be they will be full because our our complete attention will be on him our our whole being will be so tuned to him he will not be able to resist opening heaven up to us and the impact of that upon our lives and all that we do was unimaginable. Unimaginable. One of the reasons it's unimaginable is because we haven't used our imagination enough. We've been using it on the wrong things. Okay. Can have the worship team up again, please? I'm going to invite you to respond. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're going to uh, we're going to be led in in worship, and I, I'm going to invite you to respond in this manner. Um, for some of you, uh, God will have already spoken to you about things that are distractions for you, and you'll know because the Holy Spirit's just opening your heart up to them, and. Uh, and we know how to respond because we just say, Lord, I can see this now. I, I want it to change. Whatever it is. Whatever, whatever. I, I think the anxiety thing, I'm, I'm feeling as though that's quite a big thing for, for a number of people here. There's also a thing about our, our value. You know, most of us, I'd say all of us actually, to one degree or another, we, we don't know how much God values us. We don't know how much he wants to encounter us. Sometimes we just, uh, uh, there's somebody here who feels like they're a, 
a rag doll that's just been tossed aside. And that isn't true. That is a lie. That is a lie. I want to say to that lie, go away, lie. Let this person know how loved they are by God. How precious. How incredibly precious. So I I invite you to respond. I invite you to respond. If you know what it is, you can respond now. If you don't know what it is, what distractions there are, then please go away and talk to God about it. Because they're there. They're there. They really are there. I mean, in preparing this, I had to deal with with a few and and just say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry I've been distracted by that. I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused on you and you alone. Let's stand up and have Tom lead us. If you, if you, if you, people of City Church, if you, people of City Church, follow these instructions, respond wholeheartedly without distraction to my invitation. You will be strong and will enjoy the good things the land produces. And you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. These people had never, ever, ever seen that. They had never, ever seen it. The blessing of God passed from one generation to another. They had never, ever seen the blessing of God change an alien city around them. And yet this was the promise of God to them and it's the promise of God to us now. Heavenly Father, we respond to your invitation. We respond. We say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We respond. We set aside distractions. Holy Spirit, please reveal them to us so that we know where they are and we can set them aside and we can push past them and we can push through opposition and we can get on with the job that you've given us to do of seeing your kingdom built of seeing salvation, of seeing healing, of seeing relationships put back together, of seeing families whole, of seeing uh, the city prosper, of seeing strength to communities. Amen. Okay, well, God bless you all. Um, Refreshments are ready. Have a great, great week.